Well, good morning. My name's Katie, and I'm one of the pastors here at Incarnation. And you can be in prayer because Amy and her family are taking a few days away. And so I invite you to just keep them in your hearts and minds, and that we would pray that they have some nice rest together. So today is the third Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany refers to the unveiling or revelation of Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Savior of the world the one who will rescue us from the death and the decay that infects absolutely every part of our lives. But God has not been silent or absent up to Jesus' birth under the reign of King Herod. Instead, the Bible has been unfolding for us how God has been speaking to the world in various ways through his prophets and through the people of Israel who can trace their ancestry back to Abraham Throughout human history, God has been raising up men and women who would follow him, who are willing to shine the light of his love and justice into the darkness of our world. But now, as the Gospel of Mark says, at just the right moment, God has chosen to come even nearer, and he reveals himself to humanity in his divine son, who was born as a baby. And so in these early weeks of Epiphany, perhaps unsurprisingly, our readings focused on what happened in the early years of Jesus' life on earth. We quickly shift from stories of his birth to stories about what he taught, how people responded to him, and today, how he formed a community of followers who traveled with him. Last week, Russell preached on how Jesus invited Philip and Nathaniel two of his closest disciples to follow him. And today we hear about how Jesus calls four more of these disciples. Simon, who's later called Peter, his brother Andrew, and another pair of brothers, James and John. I like the sparseness of Mark's telling of this story because it leaves a lot of room for our imagination and wondering. Unlike the other authors who chose to write about Jesus's life, Mark chooses not to give us any insight into why these pairs of brothers find Jesus' invitations so captivating, that they would be willing to leave probably pretty prosperous businesses that have been in the family for generations in order to follow him. And instead, what Mark invites us to do is to hold our question, to hold our question as we read his account of Jesus' life and at the end to decide if we will make the same choice that these disciples have made. But alongside the question of why the disciples follow Jesus is the question of why his invitation is so compelling that they would be willing to give up everything. As our story opens, John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, has been arrested, and Jesus We don't know how, but somehow he's discerned that now is the moment that he should take up his public ministry. And so from the wilderness, Jesus has come into the region of Galilee, and he's begun to say, the time is up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the good news that God has come among you. His words would have been electric. Jesus was born into a climate of political turmoil and religious unrest and his disciples lived under really tough conditions. For 150 years, 
Jewish Palestine has been divided into these warring factions. And these competing groups are really just held in check by King Herod's reign of terror. He wasn't opposed to killing his own family members to hold power. And he's backed up by the might of the Roman Empire. But it wasn't just that the system, the political system was unjust. Wealth, like our world today, was concentrated in the hands of a very few. And most of the people that Jesus went to were destitute and living on the margins. And so it's no wonder that the threat of violent unrest was bubbling just under the surface and looking for an outlet. And into that environment, Jesus comes announcing that the long-awaited reign of God has come. Certainly, some people would have been drawn to Jesus because they longed for relief from the crushing weight of poverty and injustice. But his call is more than that. It's not just freedom from, it's freedom for. What he's doing is inviting people to become citizens in a heavenly kingdom where there is no injustice, no poverty, no tears, which opposes all the values and the priorities of King Herod and Caesar Augustus. And he's inviting them to participate in that work of liberation. I don't know about you, but I have always found the phrasing of Jesus' invitation here so striking. The message translation puts it this way. Come with me and I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. Perhaps Jesus is recalling the prophet Jeremiah who spoke of fishermen who would gather his scattered people from all around the world. But he's clearly also drawing upon the day jobs of these men and making a point about who is invited into God's kingdom and how God works in the world. As we read from the book of Corinthians, but this is earlier in the book, Paul says to the church in Corinth, but it could be said of all of Jesus' disciples that they were not the best or the brightest or the most influential, the educated or the wealthiest. Instead, it seems that Jesus has gone out of his way to select disciples that would have been overlooked otherwise. There was probably lots of fishermen on the shore that morning. And for whatever reason, he chooses these people, these men, instead of any others. He chooses nobodies, really, to display his power. But this isn't really remarkable, because this is actually the way God's power has always worked in the world. He's always chosen the weakest to show his power. He's always worked by invitation rather than compulsion. He's always gone to those who welcome his arrival with joy, who are brave and teachable and willing to follow him. Think of people who followed him like Abraham or Ruth, who left everything to follow him. Who would have imagined that they would have been woven into God's plan to save the world? But throughout the Bible, we see God working through small individuals and a small nation of Israel to shine his light into darkness. But I want to caution us by invoking Abraham and Ruth and the disciples. 
to read this passage as an invitation to follow Jesus in exactly the same way they did. The point is not that everyone must abandon their jobs and their families to follow Jesus. Actually, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> the point is that following Jesus requires us to rethink our relationships to the country where we live, our family ties, the work we do every day. The point is that none of these gifts should become the center of our lives, that should displace God or hinder us from hearing him and following him. So we shouldn't be using a call from Jesus as an excuse to throw off our responsibilities to be good citizens and employees and neighbors and children. The Apostle Paul says this just a little bit earlier than our reading today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Don't wish that you were someplace else with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe exactly where you are. The challenge, as with many things in the Christian life, is not to gravitate towards the extremes of either abandoning all of our responsibilities or holding on to comfort and security so tightly that we're not willing to take any risks. The Christian life, in so many ways, is about balance. It's about remaining focused on the task that you have in front of you with perfect concentration and with perfect love for Christ in your heart, while at the same time you're listening to his voice, opening your heart to new possibilities. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. It is really hard to remain focused and absolutely open at the same time. But that's the other part of the Fisher's call that applies to absolutely every disciple who has ever been called to follow Jesus. And that is the instruction to catch men and women. Before Jesus' arrival, these fishermen caught fish that would nourish their neighbors' bodies. And that is really good work. But now they're also being called to give their neighbors the bread of life that is Jesus. Their work is to be seen as an opportunity to draw other people into God's kingdom. We can sometimes be lured into thinking that it's sufficient to meet people's material needs. But the call to fish for men and women reminds us that our neighbors are always hungering for dignity and love and kindness, and that those needs can only be fully met in Jesus. People do die from a lack of food, but they also die because all they've received is food. People die from a lack of medical access, but they also die because medicine that heals their bodies is all that they've been given. Our responsibility is to introduce them to Jesus because he is the only one that can heal them in totality, in their mind, in their bodies, and their souls. And if you follow Jesus, then you are a fisher, called to pull others out of the rough seas of life and into this community. A friend passed this on to me this week, so I'm going to pass it on to you. It's one, from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nowen, and he describes the call to be fishers this way. People who have come to know the joy of God claim that the light shines in the darkness 
and that it can be trusted more than the darkness that a little bit of light in the world can dispel a lot of darkness. They point out to each other the flashes of light, reminding one another that they reveal the hidden but very real presence of God. They discover, in fact, that there are people who heal each other's wounds, who forgive each other's offenses, who share their possessions, who foster a spirit of community, who celebrate the gifts that they have received, and live in the constant anticipation of that day when the glory of God will be fully manifested to the whole world. I pray that God would make us fishers of men and women. Amen.